But let me see here. I think this thing is working. I have trouble with this every week. Is it working? It should be. All right. That's really a good, encouraging uh, <laughs> declaration of the, of the tech here. Oh, that's funny. Well, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but we live in a bit of a contentious society. Have you, have you noticed that? Anyone aware of this? Uh, you know, one, one of the things that's kind of, it's, if it were not true, it would be kind of funny, but it's actually really sad, is that, you know, a lot of times we worry about doing the right or wrong thing, not because it's the right or wrong thing, but you're afraid someone might sue me, right? Someone might sue me if, I, if I'm not a good neighbor, right? You know, we have, we have these trees hanging over our, our church, these branches hanging over our church, and Beth and I were talking, oh, we need to get these cut. But of course, the trees are on our neighbor's property. And we thought, oh, should we, who should we talk to? Should we, uh, you know, because what if they don't want to let us cut these branches? And, you know, kind of we had to go through this process of wondering, like, are we going to have to get some, some support from the town or, you know, some legal support here? Of course, I think we called them and they're like, oh, sure, it's fine, right? You know, it's like they're great neighbors, so it's good to know. But we live in a society where we think about those things a lot, right? Because you kind of have to. And I know some of you in our own church have dealt with, with neighbors who, who were troublesome in that regard. Or also, you know, you think about uh, the types of ways that we uh, try to pursue justice in our country, and often it's through, through civil lawsuits, through financial uh, lawsuits, to try to force people to do what we want them to do. And of course, it doesn't stop in the legal realm. I think we realize that in this moment in time particularly, the world feels a bit contentious in the area of politics, in the area of, of religion, in the area of, of medicine, in the area of every single possible area that you can imagine. There's contention, there's conflict, there's disagreement. And, you know, as we look, as we look at this, this series called Faith in Action, and we're asking the question, what does it look like if we have faith in Christ if we believe in Jesus, if we believe in God, if we believe in this book that we call the Bible, what does it look like in practice? And last week, we looked at Peter and a couple of the other early disciples and apostles of Jesus who, on the day of Pentecost, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and with boldness, they began to go out into the streets and tell people about Jesus, even to the point of being imprisoned, being beaten, and being charged essentially with crimes and being told never do this again. And they said, they said, well, you know, we had to choose between obeying you and obeying God. We're going to obey God. And so there's this conflict sometimes. But what if the conflict is within the group? What if the conflict is within the church? How do you deal with that? Because some people try to take the same approach with that internal conflict as they take with that external conflict. And we get situations where we're, here we are in the church and we're trying to discern, and maybe not just our local church, but the broader church, the worldwide church, trying to discern what should we do. And some people want to say, well, I can go with you or I can go with God. Well, who am I going to choose? And maybe that's, the diff- maybe that's the wrong tactic for that situation. Maybe there's a different process of discernment, a different process of coming together. And so where we looked at Peter about how to have a bold faith and to trust the Lord, we're also going to look at Peter to, to decide and determine how do we engage 
conflict, particularly in the body of Christ. And so our text today is going to be Acts 15, which is the Jerusalem Council. Now, I need to give a little background here, and I left my water, so I'm going to grab it. I need to give a little background here on this Jerusalem Council, because I can almost guarantee that the things that they're concerned about are completely removed from the types of things that we're concerned about today. So in Acts, the book of Acts, you have this situation. We read last week Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 6, where Peter's going out and he's preaching the gospel. Does anyone know who he's preaching to in those chapters, the early chapters of Acts? Anyone? It's not a trick question. He's, he's preaching to the Jews, okay? He's going to the Jewish people and he's saying, look, your promised Messiah from the Old Testament, the, the anointed one, the Christ, the one that you've been waiting for, the Savior of Israel has come. He was crucified on the cross because you, the people of God, rejected him. But God raised him from the dead, showing that God had accepted him. And through his death and resurrection, we can have peace with God because we have forgiveness of sins. Whereas before we relied on the, the sacrifices in the temple and the tabernacle, now we have the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and now we can have a right relationship with God. And so he was encouraging them to put their faith in Jesus Christ or Jesus Messiah, to use the, the more Hebraic term. But then there comes a moment where God calls Peter to go and preach to a guy named Cornelius who is not Jewish. And Peter has to be prepared for this. God gives him a vision and he brings down this sheet and it has all this food in it. And if you know anything about Jewish law, there are certain foods that Jewish people don't eat. Um, they don't eat my beloved bacon. They don't eat shellfish. They don't eat uh, certain... If, if the animal has a cleft foot... That are not a cleft foot. There's all these rules, what you can eat, what you can't eat. And you don't eat certain foods together. And God lays out this sheet. And, and on the sheet, it's not, it's not bacon in a frying pan that he shows Peter. It's these creepy crawly bugs and gross things. And he says, get up and eat. And Peter says, no way am I going to get up and eat. I've kept myself clean my whole life. God says, no, get up and eat. And through this image, he gives Peter the understanding he says, don't call something unclean that God calls clean. And he's not telling Peter so much as to eat scorpions as he's telling him to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Because under the Jewish understanding, Gentiles just means the nations. So the world is divided into two parts, Israel and everybody else, right? There's Israel and then there's the, the nations. And the nations are not clean. And so the question was, can someone who's not Jewish be a Christian? Does that sound like a problem that you've wrestled with recently? I think today we often wonder things like, can a person be Jewish and remain Jewish and still be a Christian? There are a lot of Christians who teach that if a Jewish person, person puts their faith in Christ, they need to abandon their Judaism, abandon their Jewishness, and become a Christian. There's actually a lot of Jewish people who don't like that word Christian because for them it means Gentile believer in Jesus Christ. And so there's this whole movement called the Messianic um, Jewish movement because of that issue. Because in our culture, the question is, can you be Jewish and Christian at the same time? 
But for Peter, the question was, can you not be Jewish and be Christian at the same time? By the way, the fact that he struggled with that might give us some insight into whether you can be Jewish and Christian at the same time, because all of the Christians were Jewish, all of them. And they all remained Jewish when they were Christian. They didn't abandon their Judaism. They saw Christianity as a fulfillment of it. Now, that's the historical issue going on. So Paul's out there after Peter preaches to Cornelius. Cornelius receives the infilling of the Holy Spirit, showing that God accepts Gentiles into the faith. And so Paul goes out and is preaching to the Gentiles. And a lot of them come to put their faith in Jesus. But then these men leave Jerusalem and they travel everywhere Paul went and they say, look guys, we're really glad you heard the gospel. We love Jesus too. But if you really want to be a Christian, you need to get circumcised and become Jewish. Now again, this is so far from anything that we worry about today. But you have to understand that to understand what's going on here. And so Paul and Barnabas and others who are preaching the gospel, they come into conflict with these other believers in Jesus Christ who think that you have to be Jewish to be Christian. Okay, so this is, this is an interfaith dispute. This is not between the Christians and the, the leaders who are, who are rejecting Christ. These are all believers in Jesus. And yet they have conflict about how we should move forward. And if we were to be really fair to the historical moment, everything historically would suggest that Paul was wrong and the other Jewish leaders were right. Because throughout history, God had always required that if you want to truly have faith in God and want to have a relationship with Him, you go through Jerusalem. You go through Israel. You go through the temple. You have to become a Jew. Okay, so that's the background. So let's look at Acts chapter 15, and let's read the story of how this was handled. And when, as we do that, there's a few things that I want to keep in mind, four things. We want to look at this concept of standing strong for what you believe in, staying humble, listening, and then boldly trying new things. So that's the four areas we're going to look at and how this plays out in this story, and then we'll look at some other examples of this. So in Acts 15, it says this. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So Judea, this is where Jerusalem is. Antioch, this is where Paul and Barnabas were sent out from to preach and teach the gospel. Uh, this is, this is a, a Gentile city. So they hear about the preaching of the gospel outside of Israel, outside of Jerusalem and Judea, and so they, they go out to set things straight. And they tell them, you've got to be circumcised to be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything that God had done through them. Now, the first thing to notice is there's two groups, and of course, we're going to focus on Paul and Barnabas because they're, they're kind of the, the main characters of the book of Acts at this point going forward. So they're the heroes of the story. And this is written by Luke, and Luke is a friend of Paul. He travels with Paul. So he's telling it from Paul's point of view. But notice, you've got two groups 
who are very strongly standing for what they believe in. I don't know if you remember, but a few weeks back, we talked about, as a believer, our conscience and how we should never go against our conscience, but we noted that our conscience can be wrong. So though we shouldn't oppose our conscience, if you think you shouldn't do something, then don't do it. Because if you do it anyway, you're, you're basically saying to God, I don't care what I think is right and wrong, I'm just going to do whatever I want. So don't go against your conscience. But your conscience can lead you astray and it can be wrong. And so here we have two groups of believers who are convinced of an opposite truth. One is convinced that you have to become Jewish to be saved. The other is convinced that you don't have to become Jewish to be saved. Okay, So that's the argument. But they're both standing strong for what they believe in. And I want to suggest to you that there's nothing wrong with standing up for what you believe in. That's a good thing. Even within the church, don't think that just because you disagree with someone that you should just kind of shrink into the background. That you need to just keep it quiet and keep it to yourself. That it shouldn't be brought up, that there should be no conflict. I wonder if any of us here re- believe that not having conflict is better than having conflict. You don't have to raise your hand, but just kind of in your mind, do you generally think that no conflict is better than some conflict? Because I think a lot of us have that belief. We actually think that if we keep things smooth and we keep things calm, that's the better route. And so we don't make a noise. We don't, we don't uh, ruffle feathers, right? We don't stir the waters. We just want to keep everything calm. But Paul and Barnabas and these Jewish leaders from Judea, neither of them were willing to do that. Neither of them were willing to step back and to recede just because there was conflict. And so the first thing I want to suggest to you is that conflict is not a bad thing. Conflict is not in itself a bad thing. In fact, conflict can be the healthiest thing to do in certain situations. And here, in this moment, again, it's hard for us to kind of emotionally get into this story because it feels so distant, but it's really the question of whether millions and millions of people, most of us in this room included, have any hope in Jesus Christ or not. Right? The eternal salvation of millions of people rests on the answer to this question. something to consider it's a big deal so it's worth having conflict over so in verse 5 it says some of the believers who belong to the party of the pharisees stood up and said gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of moses now if you've ever read the gospels you know that the pharisees are often the bad guys right they're i don't know how it turns out that way but they're always the bad guys Uh, but it's worth noting here that in the earliest church council there were a bunch of pharisees there because they had put their faith in jesus so it's not this picture that we sometimes imagine that all of the pharisees were anti-christs in fact the greatest apostle that we know paul he was a pharisee so some of the earliest believers in christ were these pharisees but these pharisees believed that the gentiles had to be circumcised so in verse 6 the apostles and elders met to consider this question. Now, what might you think, again, we have history and we have hindsight, but if you were a Jewish person like Peter, like James, like these Pharisees, like all of the apostles, 
And for all of history, every single person who was brought into relationship with God had to come through Jerusalem. What might you assume from the outset to be the answer to this question? I think you probably would assume that the Pharisees are right and again that Paul and Barnabas are wrong. Paul and Barnabas are doing something that's really never been done before. And the Pharisees, they're the conservatives. Paul and Barnabas are the progressives, right? The conservatives say, look, God has always done it this way. His word is clear. He's always done it this way in his word. So we should do it the way it's always been done. And so as the, the, as the elders and the apostles consider this question, they actually need to approach it with a type of humility as if, it was just, as if it's an open question and not a certain question. Not that it's already all been figured out, but hey, maybe there's something going on here that we're not alert to. Now, just to give you some context here, this Acts chapter 15, this isn't happening the year after Jesus is raised from the dead. This isn't happening right away. This isn't happening two years after Jesus was raised from the dead. This isn't happening five years after Jesus was raised from the dead. This probably a decade has passed since Jesus was raised from the dead and they're considering this question. So for 10 years, they haven't really dealt effectively with this question, at least. The book of Acts spans a very long period of time. Sometimes we think as we read it, it's all in this short, like two or three years, but it's this long period of time you know, decades in the book of Acts. And they're finally addressing this. So they needed a sense of openness, like maybe God's doing something new here. Maybe what we thought God was like, maybe he's actually a little different from what we thought, what we expected. And so they met to consider this question in verse 6. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. That little story I told you about where Peter went to see Cornelius. He said, God knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear, meaning the law. Now again, we have a hard time getting ourselves into the his, historical moment. But what Peter is saying, look, for, for hundreds and really thousands of years, the people of God have tried to obey the law and be justified by the law. We have tried to be faithful to the law and show prove our worth to the Creator and to our Lord, and to our Master. And we have failed at every single turn. If you, read the book of the, if you read the books of the Old Testament, it's really just one story after another of God creating this special people and that special people failing over and over and over and over and over again. And by the way, that's not in any way a negative comment about Jewish people or about uh, the Israelites in the, in the Old Testament. It wouldn't matter what, what people God had called. We all would fall short of the glory of God. We all sin. We all uh, fail to be obedient to Him. We all, today still, cannot live up to God's standards of the law. So Peter says, why would we test God by putting on this group of people 
an obligation, a yoke, a burden that we could never bear. We needed Jesus because of the law. So let's not put the law on them and they can still have Jesus. He says, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So here we have this listening. This organization, the, the elders, the apostles, they, they take time to listen. They hear out what people have to say about this topic. This is not a, uh, this is not a conversation on social media, right? This is not a Facebook argument. Like the, you ever been in one of those? And, and you make a comment, and then someone comments back, and they totally misrepresent what you said, and then you comment back, and before you know it, you don't even know what you're even fighting about. And it's just, no, it never goes anywhere, right? Because no one's really listening. And honestly, we're probably not listening that well either because we get triggered, and so we just respond quickly uh, sometimes. And, and it's like, you go nowhere. But in the body of Christ, it should be different. By the way, it should also be different for believers on social media. I strongly encourage you. You know, social media is designed, you know, this, like whether it's Facebook or Instagram or I don't know what all the kids are into these days. I don't, I'm not tech, techie enough on that stuff. But it scrolls, right? So if you, if you read something and you don't respond right away, will you ever see it again? Will it ever show up? Sometimes it'll never show up again, right? It encourages you to give your quickest least thought out response to everything that you see because you'll never see it again. It's actually designed that way on purpose so that you'll engage right away. But that is the worst way to engage in anything that has any type of controversy and maybe even a bunch of things that aren't controversial. So they take their time and they listen. They listen to one another. They listen to Peter. They listen to Paul and Barnabas. And later they're going to listen to James. But they take the time. And what would it look like if we took the time to really understand the other person's point of view whenever we have disagreement? There's a lot of disagreement in the world today, as I mentioned earlier. And one of the things that I've noticed is that a lot of times people describe some conflict using one or two words right? We kind of have these catchphrases or words. I'm hesitant to use any because I don't want to, in your own minds and hearts, to set off something. You know, I don't want you to be triggered even in this moment. I want you to be able to hear. And so, but there are these issues and topics, and, it's, and, and, and we use one or two words to describe it. But what you notice if you take time to listen is that the group on one side using that phrase means something totally different from the group on the other side using the same phrase. We, we aren't really hearing each other, right? We're talking past each other because we're talking about different things. I don't get the impression that this Jerusalem council took 15 minutes on Facebook. I get the impression that there was time involved. There was probably longer than they wanted to be there. Probably past, you know, if the meeting started at 6 and it was supposed to end at 8, it probably didn't end at 8, right? It probably didn't end at 9, you see where I'm going? They were willing to go through the hard process of listening. And then it says in verse 13 that James spoke up. 
Brothers, listen to me. Simon, meaning Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with that, with this, as it is written. And then he quotes from Amos here. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. David is the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. Jesus restores his fallen tent, the kingship of Israel. He says, its ruins I will rebuild, I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So James says, look, I think we need some kind of compromise here. We're not saying to throw out the whole law of God for the Gentiles. But let's focus on the things that matter most. Now, to them, again, very different from the things we might choose today. He doesn't say, hey, let's tell these Gentiles not to murder one another. He says, let's make sure they don't eat the wrong food. Right? It's the way, they're, the way they understood God. Now, obviously, Gentiles already had laws about not murdering. So that they didn't have to cover all that again. They were focused on the things that might be different. And outside of the Jewish world, sexual immorality, eating blood or uh, meat from strangled animals, and um, food polluted by idols is a big issue. Big issues at the time, particularly. So James focused on those. He says, look, let's, let's remind them about the things that God is specific about, but then let's let them find their faith, find their peace, Find their forgiveness in Jesus Christ alone. Not through the law. Not through circumcision. And then they write them a letter to tell them about their findings. And we don't have to read the whole letter. But I want to focus on verse 28 in Acts 15. And in the letter that they wrote to the Gentile churches, they said, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements, which are the same requirements. How in the world could these leaders in Jerusalem say, you know, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. God thinks as we do. We agree with him, by the way. We agree with the Lord. The Lord thinks that we should take this route. And I just have to believe that they took time listening not only to each other, but they listened to God both through Scripture and also they believed and acted on the leading of the Holy Spirit. And they believed that when they came to unity that the Holy Spirit was in it. And they believed that the judgment they gave, therefore, was not only from themselves, but from God. You know, I think a lot of times uh, the way things get worked out in the church is not by intense listening discerning together, looking at Scripture, listening to the Holy Spirit, coming to unity, and then acting as one. Uh, there are, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but there's, there's a lot of different types of churches in the world today. Some of you grew up Catholic, right? I don't, there, there was this, this thing called the Reformation where 
the Catholic Church was split, and there was this Catholic Church and this Protestant Church. And it happened uh, in the aftermath of one man standing strong for something he believed in, that salvation was by faith alone, the grace of God through Jesus Christ, this guy named Martin Luther. Uh, October 31st is not only Halloween, but it's also the anniversary of him nailing these 95 points, these 95 uh, questions and comments about the practices of the church on the door of the church in Wittenberg. And we, so we call that Reformation Day. So if, you, if you're not into Halloween and, and, and skeletons and scarecrows, then you can maybe just nail a list of the 95 theses to your door and hand out candy in honor of Martin Luther uh, so you don't anger the neighborhood kids, but stay on your ground. Um, but, but one man did that. One man stood up. And, you know, they told him, you, you need to stand down. You need to stop. Cease and desist. The Pope was going to excommunicate him. And he said, again, according to his conscience, here I stand, I can do no other. I, I can't, I can't stand down. You know, I don't know how humble Martin Luther was when you read about him. He's, he's a pretty um, uh, aggressive kind of person. Uh, which might be needed sometimes, right? But there were people around the, the world, particularly in northern uh, Africa, in the Middle East, and in Europe, who started to read these ideas and started to say, hey, I'm open to hearing. I'm, hoping, I'm open to wondering if the way that we, you know, quote-unquote, do church is, is off. And by the way, the early reformers were not trying to create a new church, but they were trying to reform the church that was. But there was conflict, and so they broke apart. And then the story that goes from there is that everywhere the Protestant church is and was and has gone, it has also splintered where it, wherever it went because people couldn't agree. There was no unity to be found. So not only do you have these major uh, denominations like the Presbyterians and the Lutherans and the Anglicans, and, and the, then out of that Anglicanism you get the Puritans and the Methodists and, and then out of there are the, the, these radical reformers called Baptists and, and, and Quakers and you know, all these different groups. And then within the groups, within the Presbyterians, you've got hundreds of different splinter groups. And within the, the uh, there's splinter Anglican groups. And there's, I don't know if there's splinter, yeah, there's splinter Lutheran groups and there's splinter Baptist groups. And you know, you just go down the line and there's all of this example of the body of Christ being torn asunder over disagreement. And I think it makes God's heart sad, but I think it also shows that we have struggled not only to stand strong, we're pretty good at that, but to do it with humility and then to listen well. What's interesting though is that when they're done with this Jerusalem council, they don't in reinforce the status quo. They actually do something that was unprecedented. Unprecedented in the history of God's work in the world. And they said, we're going to try something new. We're going to let these Gentiles, let them is not the right word, we're going to acknowledge that these Gentiles have relationship with God totally apart from Jerusalem. 
Now, they're still under, in a sense, the authority of Jerusalem because this, this is the Jerusalem council deciding this issue, right? So the people that were a part of this, they at least seemed willing to submit to the decision that was made in that moment. Paul and Barnabas seemed willing. Certainly those Pharisees seemed willing because while there was still some conflict after this, it was largely a settled question. And whenever conflict arose, they would just show the letter from Jerusalem and that would kind of end the debate. So they, they were willing to submit and humble themselves before the decisions instead of just going off and creating, at least right away, their own splinter groups. And I think that honors the Lord. You know, I asked permission to share this story, but some of you know the story of my mom and dad and the, the church that they were in. And I talked to my dad. I said, hey, can I share a little bit of your story in church? And um, dad, how long were you on staff at the church you were at? 37 years. So he started working there, I think, right before I was born, right? And um, right out of seminary. And then held different positions on the staff. He was, he was uh, one of the associate pastors, senior staff at this church that, that was a pretty big church in its heyday. Um, but what had happened over the years is that there were this group of people who essentially had, had uh, not only moved into positions of authority in the church, but really forced other people to just do whatever they wanted. They kind of were strong-arming in a sense. And they were, anyone who had dissent, they would either you know, make it difficult enough for them that they would resign or, you know, they would just outvote them on everything that came up. This is not a healthy thing in a church, right? And you can imagine not only, like in a church our size, if, you know, these were, these were elders in the church. I can talk about Paul because he's downstairs. You know, if, if Paul and I had a disagreement, you know, as elders, and you guys know me and you know Paul, and, you, and you'd kind of know what's going on. But in a church with hundreds or even thousands of people, you don't know these folks who are making decisions necessarily. It's hard to discern what's going on. You might hear things that are negative and, and dismiss them. Or you might assume that everything you hear is true, which neither one of those is good. Um, so my dad and my mom collectively made a decision that it was time to stand up. And my dad, in a big church meeting, stood up and said, hey, we need to have, a, we need to have a, a Jerusalem council about this issue. We need to have a, a meeting about this, and we need to address these concerns. Because honestly, there were even pastors at the church who had voiced concerns, and they were, they were fired. They were sent off, and their, their retirement was held over their heads, you know, and they had, they had to leave, and they couldn't talk. So he got up and he spoke. That's a scary thing to do, right? It initiated a lot of conflict in the church. And there were a lot of people who were upset that you had brought this conflict to the church, right? As if you had created the conflict by naming it. You see, the people who stand strong for their convictions typically are not the people creating the conflict. They're often the people who are standing up and acknowledging that the conflict exists. They're often the people who are, who are, who are putting their foot down and saying, we're not going to let this continue to happen. By the way, numerous pastors have been driven away by these leaders from that church. Numerous. This wasn't like one time. Many. 
And so it's time to say no more. But it's a scary thing to do. You lost your job, right? Um, and they wanted to put the same gag order on him. And to a degree, they did. They, they forced certain things. Um, but in the, pre, in the past, the previous people who left, they had to uh, abide by those agreements and they had not publicly said anything. You said something publicly first. And that started a chain of events that finally brought in this outside group. So it's kind of like Christian consulting group for people who are, for churches who are struggling and especially who have conflict. And they were able to publicly acknowledge that these men were, I, my phrasing only, a cancer to that church. And they were forced out by the, by the church. Forced out. And now they're entering in and they've entered into a process to try to rebuild and restore and heal. And it's going to be a long road because those things, they run deep in communities. But if no one had stood up, those men would still be in charge right now, still doing the same thing they've been doing. And either that or the church would be dead. Like, you know, one or the other. So the conflict was necessary to bring about the outcome. Imagine if the Jerusalem Council never addressed this question of whether Gentiles can be real Christians or not. Then we'd have this other division in the world today where you had, you know, all of us, <laughs> right, most of us, wondering, you know, who's, where's the real church? Who's, who are the real Christians? Right? Because no one stood up and it stood their ground. So here's the thing. It's both a challenge from the scripture for us to stand strong for what we believe in right not be pushovers not be scared not think that no conflict is inherently better than some conflict but then also to do it in a way that honors Christ do it with humility do it with the listening spirit and being open to God pushing us into something new now, this, this issue is settled, right? So we don't need to have new discoveries, I think, about whether Gentiles can become Christians. That one's done, right? But there's, there's issues that we face now. And by the way, when I talk about boldly trying new things, I don't just mean um, abandon the past at all. And if you are one of these, if you kind of see the, some of these issues as conservative and progressive, I don't mean, well, you do the progressive one. That's not what I'm saying at all. It's not, that's not what defines what the right way is. But often, and I think the case here, is what they realized is that in some ways the bold new thing was also the conservative thing. It was also the one that was most, faith, most faithful to the Word of God, most faithful to history and where God was moving history. Because God, they brought up these passages, God had promised that the Gentiles would come to faith in Christ. So sometimes we are stuck on an old way of doing things that actually takes us away from the tradition that we hold to. Does that make sense? Sometimes you can do things in an old way. For example, uh, in the church, this is the church I grew up in, the church my mom and dad were in. The old way of doing things would not have been to stand up in front of the church and call out the problem. That was a departure from the old way of doing things but it was also more faithful to what the church, I would say, the capital C church stands for. 
right? So sometimes you have to do new things to hold on to the old truths of Scripture, to the, to the gospel, to fidelity to Christ and to the Lord and the Holy Spirit. And it takes a lot of prayer, a lot of listening to the Lord, a lot of searching the Word, right? Listening to each other. Sometimes the result is not uh, pleasant because sometimes uh, division is inevitable. But other times, God works powerfully in ways that you least expect. And through conflict, people are brought closer together. Closer together because we were willing to stand up and speak the truth to one another in a loving way, to hear one another, to listen well, to honor one another. And when we do that, God is honored. And I believe that the best practices come forth so that we can literally say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us that this is what we should do. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And that feels good. <laughs> that feels so good when you can come to a meeting of minds and hearts with people in Christ and have a sense that God is in it and trust that he's working on, on this with you and not that you're just doing your own thing. You know, if we, if we wanted to, we could take time and we could all come up with 10, 15, 100 examples of how we've seen this play out poorly but what I would love is for us to increasingly see examples where this plays out well where the church acts like the church where Christians act like little Christs right the embodiment of Jesus on this earth where we embrace each other with love with courage Courage not only to stand strong, but courage uh, to be wrong. Courage to be proven or, or led in a new direction that maybe none of us expected from the outset. I don't know what Paul and Barnabas hoped would happen here. But, you know, it seems like there was something new going on. Something new created. A new understanding. A new faithfulness. So church, this isn't uh, a rousing call to share the gospel. I'm not here to tell you that you've been doing everything wrong and now you need to start doing it right. What I'm saying is, hey, let's have this mindset like Christ. It reminds me of Philippians 2, where we consider others greater than ourselves, right? We put the needs of others ahead of us, even in conflict, knowing that sometimes conflict is what puts everyone's needs first being willing to step into that, to that battle, if you will, but then also know that the Lord is in it and the Lord will resolve it. It's not all up to us. The Holy Spirit's involved. We can listen to each other and listen to Him and find our solution. Amen? Well, let's pray for ourselves and let's pray for our church. Let's pray for our world. I invite you to join with me as I pray that God would increasingly let this be the model for how we live our lives in conflict with one another. Well, Lord, we know that, that this kind of conflict <coughs> in some ways is inevitable. But Lord, where we shy away, where we're afraid to face difficult things, Lord, give us courage. 
Help us to stand strong in the face of opposition, even if that opposition is within the church. But Lord, when we do that, help us to do it in a way that honors you. Help us do it in a way that exemplifies the spirit of Christ. Lord, help us to be humble. Lord, start with me. Help us to listen. And Lord, start with me. Help us to discern from the Holy Spirit and from your word what it is that you're calling us to do in that moment. And then God, help us to be bold in stepping out in new ways, new, new ways of faithfulness, new ways of obedience, new ways of unity to face this world that's full of challenging questions for the church, that's full of controversy, where we need more people, Lord, who will approach the, the big issues of today like this. And Lord, let it all be done under the orchestration and power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray.